Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're joining us from. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and maybe you've had an experience similar to I had recently. Last week I was talking to someone and I was trying to make a decision. It wasn't like a huge decision or, or an overly moral decision where there was a clear right and wrong. It was more gray than it was black and white. And, and this person, meaning really well, said to me this really interesting thing. They, they looked over at me and they said, well, maybe you just need to do what feels right. And in that moment, I think it was well-intentioned. This person loves Jesus, loves me, desires to see my best and the best for kind of my life and the world around me. The problem was, as I kind of turned and looked at them, was I said, that is the problem. I don't know what feels right. All the options feel like they could be somewhat right. All the options seem to have some value of a pro or a con or whatever it may be. The problem is saying just do what feels right doesn't actually lead me to a helpful conclusion. And you've been there, right? You've heard echoes of phrases that, that we hear from every direction. And it's not just conversations with friends. We, we hear it when we watch films, when we watch television, we read it, when we look at books or literature of any kind. It is the echo of our era and our culture all around us. Do what feels right to you. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Be true to yourself. Here's the problem with that or the question that I think it raises. To which self should you be true to? Like if the call and the great, you know, um, thing that you need to do in your life is to be true to yourself, the, the question then remains, which self should you be true to? Which feeling are you supposed to follow? Because the self you feel like, the emotions that you have, they shift and change sometimes as many as a hundred times a day. Which truth in this moment is going to be the determining factor for how I make a decision? How do I know what right and wrong is? How do I know what is good? What do I do? How do I function through this self? To give you an example, here's one. Um, I have a deep, deep love of sports. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, athletes. I'm fascinated by professional sports. I follow professional sports really, really closely. I love playing uh, on a soccer team. I love running. I got to run a half marathon last year and it was this amazing experience. I love it. I'm absolutely obsessed with being in competitions and getting to compete and trying to get my body to kind of its peak ability. I want to be in good shape. I want to fit into the clothes I wore when I was 21. I want my wife to be like starstruck when she sees me walk across the room. Like I want this incredible level of fitness and skill and athleticism and I want to look good. The problem is I love that and desire that and seek for that and feel like that's what I want out of life. But you know what else I love? Nachos and French fries and a junior chicken with extra lettuce. See, there's two pieces of me. There's the piece of me that loves and desires this one thing for my life, to be fit and to be good and to, to have kind of my body cared for really well. And then there's this other piece that wants to sit on the couch and watch a show and, and eat food that I probably shouldn't be eating. The reality is that for each of us, there is a sort of war of loves in the author David Bennett's language that takes place in our hearts. Every time we navigate a decision in front of us, whether it is a big one or a small one, this is about more than what we end up buying at the grocery store or whether or not you and I make it to the gym a couple of times a week. 
Whether you hear this message as a Christian or not, we all live in the reality where we are in a culture where the self is the ultimate authority to follow your heart, to live your truth, whatever that might look like. Personal fulfillment is the ultimate goal. That is what we are all after. Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Have you achieved what you wanted to in life? But we look at the stats and I could read some of you today. I'll save you that drama. And you would know that this kind of chasing, this kind of pursuit of self-fulfillment has led to an age of burnout, anxiety, and exhaustion. And yet we chase after it all the same. And if we're not careful, that same kind of desire for self-fulfillment starts to creep its way into our spirituality. Here's how theologian David Wells explains it. In this age, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The whole world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, and all that remains is the self. And in the passage we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bible and want to open there, the author Paul is going to say things that are frankly shocking and, and a little bit upsetting to our kind of modern minds that pursue this idea of the self. That we, in our journey for self-fulfillment, in our desire to get what we want out of life, are going to read these words, and there's going to be a number of things in it that, that push against us. That, that have to kind of work on our hearts. In fact, to be totally honest with you, when I opened this passage and began to read it, I, I remember feeling like uncomfortable and being a little bit bummed that, that I got this passage to share with you all today because there was a part of me that went, this is uncomfortable. This messes with my idea of what a good life looks like. This, this kind of offends me in some ways. Jesus is pushing against what I think is good and right and true and feels good to me was something that challenges me. To be honest, Paul's language made me squirm, which we'll talk about more in a minute. The intensity of the language convicted my heart. And I think what we need to know, just as a bit of an aside, is there is times when God's word, when the Bible is actually meant to be a healing balm to care for your soul. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. But there's also times that God's word cuts to the heart in the language of the book of Acts that it actually cuts us open and leaves us in some sense wounded going, oh man, I wasn't prepared to hear that level of truth. This is why we need the entirety of the Bible, not just the parts that make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Because here in Romans 6, after looking at this beautiful new life in Christ and how we're invited into an opportunity for us to step into this new identity, that because of what Jesus has done, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, there is a new Adam, there is a new way forward for us. Our identity is in Christ, not in our sin or our past or our shame. Paul responds to the pushback that he's expecting to get from those he's writing to. If we're under grace, if the law has been fulfilled, who cares what we do? If we're under grace and not under the law, if we're really free, then why is God so concerned about what I do? Like if God really loves me and wants to set me free, shouldn't he just like save me and then leave me alone? 
Like if God is really all about freedom, then, then why does he care so much about who I sleep with or how I spend my money or what I do on the internet? Why, why is God so worried about this? Well, here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter six, starting in verse 15. What then? Should we continue to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not, writes Paul. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin that leads to death or of obedience that leads to righteousness? Hold on a minute. Slavery. Now, slavery to sin. Now, now that's language I could understand. The things that we're addicted to feel like slavery. The bad stuff in my life that I feel like I can't get over, that feels like slavery. The problems that I have, the challenges that I have, the things that I wish God would root out of my life. I can get that language when it comes to the bad stuff, but what does it mean to be a slave to righteousness? How could Paul be writing and talking about slavery as a good thing? Isn't the whole idea of the gospel that Jesus has set us free from slavery, that we can sing songs like we are no longer slaves and proclaim that truth, that we aren't actually held down by our sin and shame anymore? We read verses in the Bible, for freedom you have been set free. I have come, says Jesus, that they may have life and life to the full. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Bible is filled with language about freedom. How could Paul write here to the letter to the Romans that slavery can be a good thing? Well, what I want you to understand, and we'll speak on this, is that Paul isn't actually setting up here an advocation for the concept or institution of slavery as you and I understand it. But he's aiming to point out this basic reality in the world. Everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is obedient to some picture of what they see as valuable in their life. Everybody is making their decisions based on some kind of idea of what is good and what is right and what is true in the world. Everyone has some picture of what is worth living for and what is worth fighting for and what is worth dying for. Here's how theologian Rebecca Manley Pippert describes it. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whoever or whatever is Lord of our lives. And as much as we might, with our 21st century Western mindset and lens, insist that we are free to do whatever we want, that no one has any right to speak into our lives, including God, to tell us what we can and cannot do, this idea that we can be whatever we want, do whatever we want, experience whatever we want, have whatever we want, we all, if we're truly honest at the core of ourselves, submit ourselves to something, to an idea, to a desire, to an end goal of our lives. And according to Paul, at the core of the matter, there's two options. We can either be slaves to sin or we can be slaves to God. Now, before we go any further in this passage, it's important that we pause on this language. And I want to be clear, this language is true to the text. This isn't a mistranslation. Paul here does not say the word servant. He does not say the word helper. It says slave. And our minds, my mind, rightly hears that language and naturally takes an issue with it. On the other side, where we find ourselves of centuries of systematic racism, of the tragic history of the Atlantic slave trade, 
slave trade and its impacts on so many people of color over the years that continue to impact and harm people right up to this very day. Slavery is an issue not of the past, but of the present. Today, there are more than 50 million people in the world living in slavery. That's higher than the population of Canada. Human trafficking is a $150 billion industry and the vulnerable are the most likely to be preyed upon with one of four people living in forced labor who are children. A passage like this one and others, both in the Old Testament and in the New, have been wrongly used in history by people who claim the name of Christ to try and defend or approve of the degradation and subjugation of people based on skin color and ethnic heritage heritage, placing one group of people as better than or worse than another. Let me clearly state this. The concept of slavery as the ownership, abuse, and manipulation of human beings for personal gain or benefit is a sinful and evil practice. To use scripture to defend it is a horrific abuse of God's word and a twisting of that word which proclaims in truth that all people regardless of race, regardless of status, regardless of skin color, are created in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect. No human has the right to own or oppress another. And any use of scripture or the name of Christ to defend this sin is a lie from the pit of hell that we as a church and a community reject outright. I wanna say that as clearly as I possibly can. But what I want, also want us to understand is that in the first century where Paul was writing, the letter to the Romans was written to a number of people who would have been self-identified slaves. The concept of slavery that we understand today was quite different than how it was understood by Jewish and Greek people in the first century. Here's what Frank M. Snowden Jr., a black professor at Howard University, a historically black university in the States, writes. He says, in the first century, slavery was independent of race or class. And by far, the mass majority of the thousands of slaves were white, not black. The identification of blackness or any skin color with slavery did not develop until much later in history. No single ethnic group in the first century was associated with slave status or with the descendants of slaves. Now, again, I want to be clear. This is not excusing the concept of human ownership or the abuse of people for the benefit of oneself as a sin. We see in the first century as well as beyond that slavery held a radical amount of abuse and hurt and pain. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul includes those who trade slaves, those who treat people as if they were a commodity to be traded as the ungodly and the godless who are outside of the kingdom of God. That actually the New Testament is filled with encouragements for people to be set free. First Corinthians discusses this idea that whoever is a slave should actually seek their freedom. And there's tons of history that we won't get into today, but about understanding what first century slavery looked at. But here's something that's beautiful. One of the earliest known practices of the church of Jesus in the first, second, third, fourth century was to pool money together in order to set slaves free in order to buy people out of slavery. In uh, St. Augustine's writing, which took place in the fourth or fifth century, um, he actually has a number of sections in his writing where he points to churches going bankrupt because they were using all the funds that they had to purchase people out of slavery, to feed them, to give them what they needed so they could be free from the bondage of slavery. 
that the early church, that the New Testament calls us into freedom and not slavery as we understand it. What Paul is doing here, and more broadly, what the Bible's assertion is, is not that slavery is a good practice or one that human beings should in any way, shape, or form continue. What he is pointing us to is the reality that in a spiritual and emotional sense, whatever controls us is what you and I are a slave to. You could be a slave to money, desperate for the next payday, willing to betray or crush someone in your path to get that promotion, to get that vacation, to get that job title. You could be a slave to pleasure, waiting for the next hit, whether it's sex, whether it's food, whether it's a little heart on Instagram. You'd be a slave to power, constantly comparing yourself to other people, thinking, am I better or worse than them? And how do I get a leg up? And how do I make sure that I have control over my situation? Wondering always, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I worthy enough? A slave to power. And even this language that Paul's using is not original to Paul, but he's actually kind of calling back to Jesus who in the Sermon on the Mount said this when he was talking about money. No one can serve two masters since you will either hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus here was speaking about money, but think about it. You cannot serve both God and sex. You cannot serve both God and power. You cannot serve both God and control. You cannot serve both God and self-fulfillment. Fill in the blank with whatever it is for you. You cannot be a slave to one thing and yet still see God as the Lord of your life. Because the reality of the gospel is that not simply that we believe a logical understanding of certain truth that gain us entrance into the kingdom of God when we die, but according to Jesus, the gospel or the good news that he has come to proclaim is that a new kingdom is not coming later, but has arrived right now. In Mark 1.15, Jesus famously begins his ministry with these words. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? It is not that you pray a prayer and do a thing at camp so that you can go to heaven when you die. It is that God's kingdom is breaking into the universe. The kingdom of God through the work of Jesus, through the work of the cross, through the power of the resurrection is breaking into human history and that God's rule and reign is more real than the brokenness and the pain and the impact of our sin. And here's what we need to understand. If God's kingdom breaking in is good news, what we need to understand is that there is a king in that kingdom. Every kingdom has a king. We cannot operate as citizens of the kingdom of God without acknowledging that Jesus is the king at the center of it. We cannot sit on the throne of the kingdom and wonder why God is not at work in our lives. And that's why Paul writes with joy to this church about how their lives have been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Verse 17, Romans 6. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you have now become enslaved to righteousness. What is Paul thanking God for here? He is thanking God that the reality of the gospel is having an impact on every element of the people's lives. 
That the people he's writing to are not just having the gospel impact one section or a couple hours of their week, but the entirety of their lives is being impacted because everything is connected. I see a chiropractor. I don't have a ton of back issues, but I love the chiropractor. And I remember one time um, going to my chiropractor and having an issue with my knee and, and she cracked my back and cracked my neck. And, and I remember being like, that seemed to make a difference in my knee. And she said this really basic thing that I guess makes a lot of sense in the human body. Well, it's all connected. Everything is connected to everything else. You can't just fix one thing unless you get to the root of the problem. That's why Paul has all these elements, right? He says, you have obeyed. This is talking about our bodies, our actions, our behaviors, how we act and what we do with ourselves. But he doesn't just say you obeyed. He said, you obeyed from your heart. See that it's not just an active um, body submission to whatever God wants to do, but from the heart, our actions are, are motivated by the right things. Our desires have changed, the emotions behind why we do what we do. We obey not because we have to, but because we want to. And then finally, he says, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching. What is he talking about here? This is our minds. This is what we call in theology, orthodoxy right belief, right teaching, right thinking, our ethics and our morals and the logical way in which we make decisions. No matter what the culture may say, there is such a thing as what is true and what is good. Not just if something is good for me, but if something is morally good, ethically good, communally good. And here's what I want you to know today. We need all three. When Jesus was asked in Mark 12 by a religious leader, what is the most important commandment? He quotes the Old Testament and he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. My friends, it's not about removing your desires. It's actually about Jesus transforming and getting better desires. Here's how one pastor, John Tyson, describes it. He says, the goal of spiritual formation the goal of what God is doing in our lives, the goal of sanctification, the goal of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life is this, is to learn to think, act, and will towards God in love. It is not the suppression and removal of desire, but the reorientation of the cries and the longings of our heart towards God. What I want to show you, and it should pop up on the screen in just a second here, is this kind of diagram that I think is really, really helpful. At the core of our, bo our body, our heart, and our mind, we find the call and the desire and what God longs for for us. Holistic discipleship, where the whole of who we are is committed to loving the Lord our God, and the whole of who we are then expands into loving our neighbor as ourselves. But here's what happens, and hopefully this diagram can prove helpful to you. If we operate only with obedience from the body, what you get is boring religiosity. And some of you have grown up in church and this is your experience of God. You're doing all the Christian stuff, but your heart's not in it. Your mind's not in it. You just know that that's what you're supposed to do. You're just following a list of rules. And like, frankly, I wonder, like, are you bored? Because if you can't see and understand what God is doing beyond just giving you a list of rules to follow, you're missing out on all that he has for you. But on the other side, we also see that if we only experience God through our hearts, you know what we become? Experience chasers. 
Oh man, I got to get to camp. Oh man, I got to get that worship that hits in just the right way. Oh, I need an experience. Oh, I need something crazy. My heart is in this, but, but like, I'm not interested in, in like thinking about it or, or whatever. I just need another spiritual experience. Just give me another spiritual experience. And then on the other side at the top of that chart, if we operate towards God with our mind only, you might have great theology, but you become what I would call a theological bully. You know all the right answers, but you don't love people. You know all the right answers, but you hide, whether it's behind a keyboard or whether it's behind a theology textbook, and you critique and hurt others and miss out on all that God wants for you. And then still, we see when we combine these things, we still end up lacking if we're not at the center. If we love God with our minds and our bodies, but not our hearts, what do we get? Performative legalism. Man, you know the answers, you know the stuff, your life on the outside looks perfect. It's what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb. It's, it's the Pharisees, it's walking through life and you've got the performance. Everybody knows you're a great Christian, but in your heart, you're exhausted. In your heart, you're tired of walking through and you're wondering, why doesn't God show up in my life in a way that I can experience? Because with only our mind and our body, we're missing out on the heart. But if we only love God with our body and our heart, here's what we get. Immature zeal. Man, I'm obeying God. Man, I'm on fire for God. But I have no idea what I'm doing at any given time. I'm getting fired up. I'm having arguments. I'm going to worship services like crazy. I'm all over the map. And I'm all for Jesus all the time. But if you ask me what I believe or why I believe it, I would have no idea what to explain. See, we, we don't need immature zeal. The Bible tells us to not just take milk, but to grow up into a faith that is healthy and mature. And then if we love God with just our heart and our mind, but we miss out on my, our body, this is what I wonder if for many of us is the challenge. We become grace abusers. Man, your heart's in it. You show up here and you truly want to worship Jesus. Man, you show up to community group. You truly want to pray with people and experience God's grace in your life. And you want to learn. You want to read books. You want to hear messages. You want to do all these things that help you understand. But there's something in your body that's holding you back. You're still disobeying God. You're still playing with that sin. You're still excusing the things in your life that are leading to death because it feels like as long as my heart's in the right place, I don't have to worry about my body. But at the center of all those things, at the center of God's call on our life is holistic discipleship. That God is calling us into a love of God that comes from our mind, that comes from our body, that comes from our heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. Because ultimately what this passage in Romans 6 is trying to communicate, what Paul is trying to communicate is that whatever we are enslaved to, whatever we are serving, whatever we are giving our lives to is leading us somewhere. Verse 19, Paul, a little bit tongue in cheek says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now you might offer them as slaves to righteousness, which will result in sanctification or spiritual formation in the process of becoming who God's called you to be. Here's what he's saying. Sin will lead further and further into lawlessness. Sin begets more sin. And don't get caught up in like the big theological words here because we've all experienced this. Like, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, I want to blow up my marriage today. I want to blow up my family and ruin everything with an affair. I don't think anyone wakes up and says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to steal and hurt someone. 
You know, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I'm going to begin a pattern of lying to hide my sin from other people so that I never have to deal with it. Nobody wakes up and does that. But compromise by compromise, little by little, we justify and we excuse, we follow our hearts, we do what we feel is best, we live out our truth until suddenly we find ourselves right where that ends up, alone, broken, ashamed and wondering how we got ourselves into such a mess. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it in his work, Mere Christianity. He says this, Christianity asserts that every individual human is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things that I would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years. If I'm only going to live to 70, I'm not all that worried about it but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, but it's so gradual that the increase in 70 years won't even be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for what it would be. We are going somewhere. Our decisions, our actions, our beliefs, our understandings, what happens in our mind, in our heart, and in our body is leading somewhere. But what's beautiful about the gospel and what Paul is saying here is that the inverse is also true. Where our submission and obedience to sin leads to greater sin and greater death experienced in our life, our submission and obedience to God leads to the process that we call sanctification to become more and more like Jesus, not to receive more love from God. That's already been determined. The verdict is in on how much God loves you. We see it on the cross, but rather that your body, your life, your world begins to step deeper in to who God has called you to be, to be set free from those things which we thought would free us, but never really could. Paul continues, he says, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. And what fruit is it produced then from the things that you're now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. What's he, what's he speaking to here? He's, he's saying something that like we all have to be honest about. Sometimes sin feels like freedom. Like sin's attractive. Like there's a reason people sin. Because in the moment, it feels good. Because in the moment, it's attractive. It's the same lie that the serpent gave to Eve in the garden, seeing that it looked good, seeing that the fruit might offer her something, but it can't live up to that expectation. But in our lives, sin can feel like freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can take whatever I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can look at whatever I want. I am free from the constraints of the world and more specifically, the constraints that this so-called God is trying to place on me. I remember talking to a friend who said, isn't Christianity boring? And we were having this conversation and I said, well, what did you do um, the other weekend? And he was telling me about how it was a pretty boring weekend. He sat at home, he swiped through Tinder. He was looking for someone to hook up with. He couldn't find anyone. So he ended up laying in his bed, watching Netflix, ordering from DoorDash and feeling discouraged about not being loved. That weekend, I had had the opportunity to be with our youth leaders where we got to worship and pray and speak words of love and encouragement over one another. And yet he's asking me if following Jesus is boring. See, this is what we call negative freedom. The idea that we want freedom from something. This is what uh, our cultural moment loves and desires more than anything. 
And maybe one of the best or simplest ways to capture this is Elsa, the princess from Disney's Frozen, which is a classic, classic Disney movie. But she captures this concept, this idea of freedom that people are chasing when she sings these words, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. The desire for freedom is to remove the constraints, to remove the rules, to remove what anyone would tell her to do. Here's the problem in the plot of that movie. What happens when she does that? She has a beautiful ice castle alone and isolated and miserable. In fact, the whole plot of the rest of the film revolves around how her so-called freedom is now impacting and hurting others around her. That the kingdom needs to be saved from the consequences of the so-called freedom that she has laid claim to. My friends, what I want you to know today, whether you're a Christian or not, is you are free. You have free will. God is not forcing you to do anything, but your freedom will have consequences and you will reap what you sow. To claim to ultimate freedom may feel like freedom in the moment. But I think of my nephews. A few years ago, we went to a field. They wanted to play soccer. And, and my nephew, Charlie, who was only um, you know, six, seven years old at the time, we were playing soccer and we were doing this thing. And we were kicking the ball around. And, and at one point, he picks up the ball. And the few of us who were playing soccer said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I want to play like this. And he runs past and, and the rest of us aren't really sure what to do. And, and he throws the ball into the net and he, and he says, I scored, I win. And, and you know what people's response was? Uh, we don't really want to play anymore. <laughs> like, like you might be claiming that you're experiencing freedom, that you've got what you want, that you can't be told by anyone what the rules of the game of soccer are, but we don't really want to play with you anymore. And see, we all want freedom, but the inverse, what God is inviting us into is not so much negative freedom, but positive freedom. Not the freedom from something, but the freedom to do something. The freedom to love God, the freedom to love others, the freedom to be who we were created to be, to live out the calling that God has placed on our lives. That's the invitation. That's the gift is to find the things that God has created us for and set up the right restrictions, the right guardrails, the right things that we might live into a life that is full, that Jesus has set us free. Here's how theologian Timothy Keller described it. Freedom is not what the culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but the choosing of the right constraints. Here's how Paul describes it in the final verses we'll look at today. But now he writes, since you have been set free, free from sin, and you have become enslaved to God, you will have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome, the end goal, the telos to which you are moving is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that verse you've probably heard a million times, we use it all the time as an evangelism passage, but it's not just a passage to tell people who don't know the gospel yet. It's a reality that we need. It is a discipleship passage. Sin will give us wages. To live into sin, to live as slaves to sin will lead us somewhere. And God is acknowledging your freedom and your free will. If you want to do that, you can do that, but you will reap what you sow. 
The result of your sin, the result of the brokenness, the result of the lying and the breakdown and the love of money and the love of power and the love of sex will lead you somewhere. But what God is inviting us into is that we don't need to earn wages, but that the free gift of God is eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That is the gift of God. That is the invitation to which we are invited to. Let me close with this, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. My friends, you don't have to be a slave to your sin anymore. You don't have to give in to that temptation anymore. God has loved you. God has given himself for you. God has raised from the dead. Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit is at work and active in your life. And when we realize that our freedom, that the grace of God has been given as a gift because we couldn't earn it, it is then and only then that we don't have to prove it. We don't have to impress God and others. We can simply be who God is calling us to be and be a servant, be a loyal follower of what we actually have been called to. By the gift of God, the work of Christ crucified, and the presence and the work of the Spirit in your life, you have access today to the same power by the work of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to produce something in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you already know what the fruit of the Spirit is, that when we actually become slaves to God and not slaves to our sin, that we are set free, that you can be free to love instead of being a slave to selfishness that you can be set free to have joy instead of being crushed by despair when you don't get what you want, that you can be set free to experience peace instead of being overwhelmed with anxiety, that you can be set free to experience patience and not be overwhelmed by the stress that comes in the world, that you can be set free to live a life of kindness and not match the internet outrage and the harshness and the anger of our cultural moment, that you can be set free to be a good person, not because of you, but because of God working in you to heal and redeem the brokenness. You can be set free to be someone who is faithful and stop compromising on your convictions about what it means to follow God, that you can be set free to be a person who's gentle and not intense and condescending and looking down on other people, that you can be set free to experience the fruit of self-control and let go of the idea that you need to get what you want, live your best life, live out your truth, that you might find that when you submit to God, you are set free by the work and power of Jesus. Let me pray for you today as we close. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you have set us free. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have been bound up in chains to the things that we thought would free us. God, and I don't know what it is for whoever might be listening to this right now, but what I do know is that whatever it is that we have given ourselves over to that isn't you, it will destroy us. God, the wages of sin is death is not this scary um, word about how angry you are at us. Rather, it's this, this warning that we will reap what we sow, but we thank you, King Jesus, 
that the free gift of God is eternal life. And so we take hold of that reality today. We take hold of what you want to do in our lives. Lord Jesus, shape us and form us, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. We love you, Lord, and we trust ourselves to you, knowing that you are at work for your glory and our good. So Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. Help us as we do just that. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this day. In your name we pray, amen.